the beginning of the year, we indicated that we would talk about a broad theme called Quietly Loud. The question we've been asking is, how does a person of faith inhabit a world with the love of Jesus? And so this year has been given to talking about what are the things that Jesus people need to do quietly and what things should Jesus people do loudly. And I suspect that this is a morning that we could learn much. And so this morning is about seeking understanding. You know, we live in a culture that's an addicted culture in many ways. Many of our young people grow up looking at their footy heroes, knowing them by the odds that are associated with their play and the game that's happening this week. We live in a community in which there's so much technology around, in which there can be a social sort of, if you like, disconnection from other people as this becomes the mainframe I look at. We live in an addicted society. And so one of the critical questions that we named at the beginning of the year was to ask, what is the nature of addiction and how can we understand this more? And so today, we've wanted to talk about just that. And who better to come and actually answer and respond to some of our questions to help us understand, but someone who has dedicated much of their working life to helping people get free from addiction. Uh, this person has been a regular guest on our Monday Matters, and I first heard him. One of the things that he said that I'll raise today is part of our conversation that he said that struck me most profoundly about the nature of relationships and addiction. And he's also been on a recent um, program on SBS called Addicted Australia. And having had a watch of that, again, the eyes opened into the nature and the shape of what addiction is about. So would you join me today in putting your hands together and welcoming Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Come on up, Fergal. Oh, we've got uh, some questions that we want to run with you to, through with you today. Firstly, thank you for coming. You found us okay. We've put on a marvellous day outside today, but uh, it is much warmer on the inside here. Now, sorry to remind you of your workspace, but this is where you work. It's called Turning Point, and I love this little tagline, transforming lives and leading change to people affected by addiction. So could you tell us what is Turning Point all about? That's <laughs> about transforming lives. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. So I, I think Turning Point as an organization, its focus is, the, is, is addiction, including substance use and also process addictions. And it has various aims, including clinical care, uh, research, advocacy, and education. And Really, unless we view the, the, the approach to addiction according to those lenses, we are actually missing some of the, the good work that is, that is needed. And one of the reasons why I'm so pleased to be here today is because it is an opportunity for me to advocate for people who are struggling. And before I let you ask me another question, I want to say two things. Uh, first, well, three things. Firstly, I'm absolutely overwhelmed and stunned by the vibrancy that I see in this room. And... This is a great joint you've got, Troy. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I'm honoured to be here, and thank you for inviting me. The second thing I want to say is we've all sung the following lines. Free every captive, break every chain. To what extent does that apply to those struggling with addiction? And the third thing I want to say is you, ma'am, are perhaps the bravest person I've met. 
on what you said, I think we all have to take home. Somebody loved me so much that I had no other choice. Think of those words. You're the bravest person I know in this room. That's good. You know, um, one in five Australians, at some stage in their life, it says, will have a problem with gambling, alcohol or drug use. So could you talk us through what is addiction? Essentially, what is addiction? One of the most profound definitions of addiction that I've heard is the three R's. It's a repeated engagement with a rewarding stimulus despite negative repercussions. And that then allows us to consider why people are suffering. It's, it's usually is because of trauma. When I see people with addictions, I always look for the underlying trauma. I don't ask, what are you doing? I ask, why are you doing it? And the next point to make in terms of what is the definition of addiction or what is addiction, it is not a moral failing. All of us fall short of the standards of God. If we start considering it as a moral failing, we're asking God to make a distinction between that, that person and me. It's a flea and a louse. We all fall short in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, if we start viewing addiction as a moral failing, we're starting off on the wrong foot, and we are inviting judgment upon ourselves. We know from science that addiction is a chronic disease with a neurological substrate that drives behavior. We also know because it is a chronic disease, it's no different from diabetes, it's associated with relapse. Yeah? How many diabetics do you know that, are, that lead perfect diabetic lives? We don't judge diabetics. We say, oh, poor thing, they've got a chronic condition. They're struggling. We need to support them. How many people say the same about people struggling with addictions? And if we don't learn to see addiction in that lens, we will, fall, we will be judged, and we also fall short in the eyes of the Lord. Mm. Have you ever thought about another career as well? <laughs> <laughs> Troy, while I look at the master, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. So, yeah, I haven't actually, but, you know. <laughs> Each to his own. <laughs> is addiction misunderstood then? Oh, totally. Mm. <laughs> totally. What's, what's mostly misunderstood? Is it about the way in which people naturally make that connection to, oh, that's a moral failing? Or are there other aspects of addiction that, as you have looked at various clients and people wanting to get free from this, you say there's some other misunderstandings we need to have some inf further information about? So, first of all, people understand it as, as a moral failing. People understand it as a choice. They chose to go down that path. It's not a choice. People don't wake up at the age of eight thinking, well, hey, guess what I'm going to do for my adult career? I'm not going to be a train driver. I'm not going to be a spaceman. I'm going to be an alcoholic. Mm. Well, hey, mm. it's not a choice. Mm. All right? The next thing to understand, the other misconception is that detox is easy. Let's send them to rehab. Let's fix them once and for all. Let's send them for a week to turning point. They'll fix them. Then they come back. 
and then they relapse. So first of all, misunderstanding the role of detox, misunderstanding and underestimating the power of addiction and the change that addiction puts around people is also a huge gross misunderstanding that leads to judgment and a lack of compassion. Yeah, yeah. On the show, there was one lady by the name of Dawn. She's, six, she's 62, you know Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, she's... a a soon-to-be grandmother, that's her story, and uh, she says, uh, in, at stage of my life, I would be drinking one to three bottles a day, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to my granddaughter being born, and I want to be a present grandma to her, and I know that I have to get myself off this in order to be a safe person for her to be around. Mm-hmm. But she said she was introduced to alcohol at the age of 13, and it became very much socialised for her all of her life. So could you help us understand, um, if, it's, if it's not a choice necessarily the way you're describing it there, Fergal, ha- how does someone become addicted? Is there one way or many different yeah. pathways? Yeah. Right, so you have to answer that question according to two broad lenses. Firstly, you have to understand the power of the substance, and then you have to understand the context, the person. So really it's the substance and then the person and the person's environment. So we know, for instance, that... Actually, we don't, actually, I'm going to ask the question. Put your hands up if you think that heroin is more addictive than tobacco smoking. Is this a trick question? I'm just curious. What do yeah. people think? Put your hands up if you think that heroin is the most addictive substance known to man. Not a bad consum- assumption, is it? Yeah. It's not. Tobacco smoking is more addictive than heroin. Put your hand up if you think that alcohol is more addictive than cocaine. No, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but remember, you have, that's only how, when I say you're wrong, I have to correct myself because it's not just dependent on the substance, it's dependent on the context. But if we look specifically about the substance, we can actually see the hierarchy of addictive potential. And that is measured firstly with, uh, or the highest predictive potential is nicotine, then heroin, then cocaine, and then we have uh, alcohol, and then we have methamphetamine, and then we have cannabis, and a couple of other things as well. But that's the hierarchy of the substances. And if we move to the, to the context, the individual, then we have to start thinking about the childhood, the trauma, the upbringing, the neurological diseases like ADHD, the untreated neurological diseases, the unrecognized neurological diseases. Then we have to start thinking about the parenting, the, the, the environment in which people live and grow up. Then we have to start thinking about schools and exposure. Then we have to start thinking about the, the community. So there are multiple domains which can influence the trajectory of someone. And if those domains, if the, if the parenting is right, if the schooling is right, if the, and we're all here today, and I look at you all, and I say, if the community is right, then you have a chance. And let me tell you a story. Twins, delivered at birth, separated at birth by an accident, accident of paperwork. One twin gets sent to the Smiths, and the Smiths, Mr. Smith, is a very successful lawyer. And Joshua Smith gets sent to private school, goes to the top university and becomes a lawyer. The other kid, let's call him Jones, 
he gets adopted by someone, a single mother or a parent. She struggles, something happens to her. She's not able to meet her role models, her role obligations. She, t she um, starts drinking a bit too much. He starts going a bit wayward, falls into their own crowd, gets into a gang, starts to commit crime just to fit in. The community's wrong. He fits in, he, does a, he makes some really stupid choices when he's young and dumb. He then gets up in court and his twin brother prosecutes him in court. And they both have the same genetics. So I view addiction as a symptom of social injustice and inequity. And what can we all do about that? Well, community. We can't do anything necessarily about someone struggling with, with parenting that is permissive. We can't do anything about that. But what we can do is we can look to ourselves and ask ourselves, what are we going to do to contribute to a healing community rather than a permissive or judgmental community? It's very good, um, which is a great segue for this little line here because one of the guys said it in one of the support groups. It, was, it went something like this. I was born an addict or the day I used an addict was born. So from what you're saying there, it's these whole socialised, it's that whole bigger holistic picture that's going yeah, on. You, you, there is no one factor yeah. that can explain addiction. It is a holistic disease and it needs a holistic community approach. When's the tipping point? When does someone on their way to becoming addicted, when does it shift from a habit to an addiction? Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's be honest, right? Drugs are fun. They're great. Otherwise, we wouldn't use them. If drugs We've got didn't one work. mother just covering her son's ears here. <laughs> Sorry. Drugs are bad for you, right? I do not condone the use of drugs. They're bad for you. But for some people, right? For some people. Sorry. Sorry, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> for some people, drugs are the only solution to their pain and suffering, right? They suddenly feel normal, right? And so there is a positive reward. They feel normal. And that stage is, is, character, is what we would call in the trade impulsivity. So impulsivity means that drugs are, given, are used for positive reward. And remember that definition. Repeated engagement for a, with a positively reinforcing activity or substance, right? And a lot of people are in that stage. More people are in that stage of use than are in the next stage. And the next stage is you, you then switch from impulsivity to compulsivity. And that's the stage when you then have to keep using the drug to feel normal. First of all, drugs gave you a solution, but then they became part of the problem because without the drugs, your life is nothing. So then you have to use the drugs continually to avoid withdrawals, to avoid feeling awful, and the drugs become part of the problem. And there's that tipping point. So there's a difference between misuse or use. Some people would argue there's no such thing as drug misuse because the use of drugs is always for a reason. Yeah. yeah. And then, so that's the tipping point between misuse and addiction is yeah. when it becomes compulsive, where you have to use it to avoid feeling awful. Mm. There's often then a spiral downwards mm. when it comes to the relationships and family connections. Mm -hmm. So could you describe for us what's the ripple effect 
um, for someone who's it's uh, the impact upon their friends and family? So one of the diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder is the failure to meet personal obligations. Think about that. So if you are seeking drugs, if you are intoxicated by drugs, or if you are withdrawing from drugs, just think about how much headspace that takes up in your brain, your cognitive power, your ability to get through the day. In that situation, you, can't, you don't have the intellectual resources to do anything else. So therefore, you don't turn up at school to pick up the kids. You don't turn into work on time. You don't pay the rent on time. So you're not able to meet your role obligations in life. And then what happens then is you start to lose your personal relationships. So your circle of relationships becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually all of your, you don't have any more friends you merely have other drug-using acquaintances. And at that point, all of the people around you enable your drug use. So what does recovery look like? Recovery looks like the gradual reacquisition of positive, meaningful relationships with people who do not use drugs. Now, there's a lot of shame in that process and there's a lot of fear. And one of the fears or anxieties that is quite common is the idea is, will the people that loved me before love me again? Will I be able to repair those relationships? And the short answer is, when people ask me that, is I don't know. But what I do know is that you won't get better unless you get relationships similar to those that you had before. If I could quote you then, because this is the thing that jumped out at me when I first heard you talk. You said addiction is a series of broken relationships. Did I say that? Yes, you did. And so you've just said it again here. I've just said it again, haven't I? (laughs) So the way back, and this is the, is there a way back? And your answer is yes, it's that repair process. There is, I I did say this. There is is the possibility of recovery for every person. Why do you say that? Why do you hold that optimism? There is God's love for everyone. Yeah. Are you going to call me on that one, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I would not be doing this job if I did not believe that everyone within them had the possibility of recovery. One of the things that you say, you say it to Matthew, because when you say part of this recovery process is also a series of relapses. And I love what you said to him. You said, it was a pleasure uh, looking after you. Uh, I hope it's the last time. But if not, you're always welcome. Why do you say that? Well, because it's true. (laughs) It's a pleasure to look after you. I'm in this job to interact with people. I'm not a pathologist. I'm not a biochemist. I'm not a researcher. I, I do this job because I want to interact with people and I believe in communities. I hope it is the last time. I hope that this was the one time that really was that tipping point that sent someone on the trajectory towards recovery. But we're also aware, remember, addiction is a chronic brain disease that is prone to relapse, just like any other chronic disease. And therefore, we need to understand the possibility of relapse, and we need to, be, we need to have the ability to manage relapse. And we also need to view relapse as an opportunity to inquire as to what went right 
on what went wrong, on what can we put in place differently to improve the subsequent chance of abstinence, or not, not abstinence, but recovery, because I don't really want to view recovery as purely abstinence. It's about the meaningful reacquisition of, or the reacquisition of meaningful non-drug-using relationships. For me, that is recovery. Mm. Um, thank you, Fergal. AA has played a very positive role, or it's played a significant role in helping people do recovery. Um, how do you see AA's role in that big schema of um, the whole process of getting set free from addictions? Um, yeah, uh, what's their approach? What's their unique approach? So AA was really the first, um, the first kind of peer support organisation, and for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the two gentlemen that set it up. Dr. Yeah. Bob, and I think I want to say Jones. But I could just be making that up. Anyway, it was, <laughs> it was a doctor and a patient, and, and the patient realized that he'd hit rock bottom. And so they, that's, how, that's how they actually struck up this relationship, and they, and they wrote up the, the, the book. So AA has been evidence-based and proven in, a, in, in various research articles, etc., to be effective in the management and relapse, of, of relapse prevention and helping people first of all, get off drugs and alcohol, and then secondly, to stay off alcohol and, alcohol and drugs. So it's got a very good evidence base, and it's certainly something that I recommend to, to everyone. There are, however, some issues with AA. So first of all, there is a, a certain view that it's too godlike. It's because it relies on the concept of a higher power. And for some people, that... that concept of higher power is off-putting. And so there's an alternative, uh, broadly speaking, there is an alternative service called Smart Recovery, which really is focused on CBT skills to cope until the next meeting. So with, C with Smart Recovery, the emphasis is how do we maintain abstinence mm. and sobriety yeah. until the next meeting, whereas AA takes a much more holistic, longer-term view of where am I in the world, how do I fit into this world in terms of my hopelessness and my need for a higher power. Mm. Mm. What doesn't work? <laughs> Judgment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's unpack that for a moment. What do you mean? So... All right. Yeah. So, when people come to me for the first time, all right, well, first of all, imagine the journey they've got to go through, right? So, you've got this dark secret. You can't cope. The only thing that gets you through the day is reliance on a substance. But everyone else around you thinks that you're coping. Maybe your intimate relationship, maybe they realize that something's off. But, you know, you've built this edifice, a house, a home, a relationship, a marriage, kids, a car, a responsible job, and you know that it's crumbling. But the shame of that means that you can't tell anyone because you'll be judged. Hmm. Yeah? And let's say your life turns into shocking abject poverty and misery and you've lost everything. And then someone says, someone who, someone like you or me, nice clothes, very well color coordinated. I don't know who dressed you this morning. Thank you. I, I, I try myself most Did you? mornings. I, well, yeah. I tell you this what, I tell you what. My wife got up early and chose the clothes that I'm wearing today. <laughs> she did not trust me to choose my own clothes because she said, Fergal, people will judge you, and they won't judge you. They'll judge me that, as your right? wife. Is that right? right? Okay. So, 
I've, so because of my wife, I like to think I'm a little bit, I'm quite well dressed. But anyway, so someone is going to come whose life is, is an absolute misery, and they're going to have to meet me in a position of power and authority over them. That's awful. That's frightening. The biggest thing that I can do is smile. Hello, you're welcome. It's good to see you. Welcome, come in. If people don't get that, oh, there's the addict sitting in the corner. Doctor, get rid of him quickly. Can you imagine? And unfortunately, that is the experience of a lot of my patients before they get to me. The biggest impediment to recovery is judgment. The greatest stimulus for recovery, you know what I'm going to say, mm -hmm. is love. Yeah. What kind of community then? <laughs> if you were to just wave your wand and say, what kind of community yeah. would be a healing community or even a preventative community? Describe that to us. Right. So, first of all, it's a community that allows people to fail, that respects people if they feel that they've got a problem, that respects their privacy, that gives them enough or makes them feel loved enough that, and I'm quoting the words of the bravest person in this room today, that gives them, makes them feel that they are so loved that they have no other option but to confront the problem that is troubling them. And then that community is able to receive that problem and manage it in a way that is safe, boundaried, but effective. So, what does that look for a healing community? I think a healing community has to have the ability for people to reach out for help, and it then has to have the ability to provide that help. Imagine this. I'm struggling. I'm, I've got, I, I drink a litre of vodka every night because I can't cope. I was abused as a kid. Wife has left me. I got anger issues. Can't pay the rent. I'm about to go homeless. Help. All right, okay, right. Well, uh, we'll have a meeting. And uh, here's a cup of coffee and a bit of a chocolate biscuit, and we'll refer you. And there's a six-month waiting list, by the way. But yeah, we'll refer you. And we'll and see you. And I'm going to go back and have my Sunday dinner with my nice middle-class family and my 2.2 dogs. <laughs> but they're all right because they've been referred, and, but even though there's a six-month waiting list. <laughs> you need to be able to do something proactively with the person who comes to you for help. Mm. Virgo, what advice would you give to parents here this morning? Because as soon as we mention yeah. addiction and all these various things, red lights go up. Yeah, all right. And rightly so. And rightly so. So we know that absent parenting is a risk factor for drug use. So be present in your child's life. Have those conversations. Explain to them the risks. Give them the confidence to say no. But sometimes your kids won't say no. In that case, then, love them. Recognize it. Love them. But then you have to start going into boundaried care and love. That's hard. That's hard. I'll give you an example. I have a patient whose grandmother buys him heroin. Because otherwise, he's going to get arrested and go to jail. That's not the right thing to do. That's not love with boundaries. 
I had a patient who was brought in by his mother by his ear and thrown in front of me and said, doctor, fix this patient unless, or he's going to go to prison. That's a bit better. You have to, and so remember I said to you that addiction is all about the loss of personal relationships. So as a parent, you have to maintain that relationship, but you have to have boundaries. You have to be able to say no for your child to be able to say no. And you have to watch your child hit rock bottom. And believe you me, your rock bottom is nowhere near your kid's rock bottom. But until your kid reaches rock bottom, until they are genuinely, meaningfully willing to engage in recovery, in the recovery process, they're not ready for it. But in that space, you must maintain relationships and love, but you must not be permissive. And that's very, very hard. And that's why there is a support group for parents and relatives of those affected with drugs and substances and process disorders, and that's called Al-Anon. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very good service, and I refer a lot of relatives to that service. I imagine, Fergal, that a lot of your work can be quite thankless. <laughs> Why do you do what you do? <laughs> this is my story. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I just qualified as a GP in, in uh, the United Kingdom in South Wales, and I thought I was the bee's knees. I was, I was going to be that posh guy who... I don't play golf. I never did, but, you know... Apart from playing golf, I was going to be a partner in a GP surgery. I was going to have a nice car, 2.2 kids, and a nice dog. And I was going to be, live the life to which my parents had aspired for me. And then someone came up to me and said, Hey, Fergal, do you want to do some training? I said, Yeah, sure. I, I love training. I love learning stuff. I'm a, an inveterate ticket collector. I've got lots of tickets after my name. So another ticket. It's free. Yeah, yeah, it's free. Free training. Yeah, okay, why not? What's it in? Drug and alcohol medicine. Oh, I don't do that. I don't look after those people. Those people. I don't look after those people. But I'll do the training course anyway because the training is free. <laughs> is that an a, English thing? That's an English yeah, thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, such was the problem for, for drug and alcohol in the United Kingdom. The, the government paid for this free training. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, it's free training. It's a day off a week. Lovely. Great. Paid day off a week to sit in the classroom and just twiddle your thumbs because I'm not going to look after those people. Anyway, I qualified or graduated from that training program. I said, oh, I suppose I better see a few drug addicts. So I got a job, a part-time job, in a criminal justice-funded program where it was the clinic of last resort, where if you failed in this clinic, you were going to send to prison, get sent to prison. So that woman, that mother, who dragged her kid in by the ear, she came into my room and threw her son down in the chair in front of me and said, Dr. Armstrong, you must save my child from prison. I will pay you privately if you work your best to keep my son out of jail. And I said, ma'am, I'm here. I'm paid. You don't have to pay me anything. And this 25-year-old kid was in tears in front of me, full of remorse and shame. And he was sitting in front of this posh young GP who thought he knew it all. And I started him on this new wonder drug called Subutex. And within three days, he'd stopped using heroin. Within three weeks, he'd moved back home. Within six weeks, he was doing odd jobs for his father. And within three months, he was on his father's books, paying taxes. And I thought, isn't it easy? Isn't that lovely? I can cure addiction with one drug. I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm addicted. 
this is it. I had my positive reinforcement. I had my whole in one. And that whole in one, that first success has sustained me through all those dark days of despair <laughs> that bring me here today to speak to you. Yeah. And why don't you put your hands together for Fergal? Hasn't he done a marvellous job? Yep. Thank you very much. Good on How about we take a pause for a moment and have a breathe? There's lots to take in, isn't there? I want to read to you some words that Jesus said. Jesus said these words to people living in his own hometown of Nazareth. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. something that Jesus and Turning Point have in common is they both like seeing people set free one time Jesus was asked why do you hang around with those, those, those sinners and tax collectors and his reply was this healthy people don't need a doctor six people do I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but more broadly, if I can use this context, but to those who know they're sinners. Jesus came for those who didn't have it all together. So church is supposed to be that place where people know they don't have it all together and they've discovered something in Jesus that fills that and as they experience the love of God in their life, they actually pour it out to others freely. Which is kind of a really cool concept, isn't it? Which means that if, you've, if you're perfect and you've got it all together, then you're kind of not welcome in these spaces. <laughs> so I wonder if you're perfect and you've got it all together. Could you talk to me afterwards? Because I'd really like to know your secret. There was one young lady by the name of Heidi on the program that we've been referring to. She's in her mid-twenties. She's been five years functioning as an adult with a hidden bottle. It's the only way she can function. And I remember her sitting there in, with tears. First thing she said, I'm so angry with myself. I'm so angry that I've let it get to this. The second thing that came through, most evidently she said, I'm doing this program right now and it's being taped and I still haven't told my parents. She said, I'm working up to that. I sense because of what Fergal's been talking about, that overwhelming sense of shame. Shame is that insidious force that tells you lies, that says, if they really knew, then. If they really knew what I was doing, 
if they really knew what my life had come to, if they really knew me, they'd reject me. And so I could see in her face this this exhaustion that you've been living your life holding and juggling all these balls to keep the thing a secret. And yet around her were people who were prepared to throw her a lifeline. And say, come, let's talk about it. And so she was trapped in darkness. And I hear these words of Jesus. Come to me, all you are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your very lives. I wonder what a healing community would look like. I wonder what a group of people would look like that said, we're prepared to walk that road. Because I've discovered in my life and the things that haven't quite worked out for me and the hardships and the difficulties, I've discovered that there's power in a church whose arms are open wide. I can't promise you nice straight paths. I can't promise you it won't get messy. But there's healing to be found. There's life to be lived. And there's freedom to be had. Jesus said, I've come to set people free. And I know sometimes you want the quick fix, the quick response. But there's healing power in a community whose arms are open. Because it's a place that repairs. And it all begins with the church that takes its mask off and says, I don't have it all together in my life. That's why I've come to know Jesus. He's the forgiver of me. And you know what? If he makes room for me, then maybe he makes room for someone else too. And it starts with an honest conversation with myself. someone I disclosed that to for the first time and with God so maybe just as we pause as we come to a close this morning I wonder what God might be speaking to you about today I wonder in the quiet what he's gently whispering to you I wonder if he might be throwing you a lifeline I wonder what lie you've been believing about yourself and about God that needs replacing. For you to walk in wholeness, more wholeness, more freedom, more life. So as the music plays, I just wonder if we might pause. If you would like to open up your hands just where you are as a simple sign to God that I'm here and I'm available want to listen to what you might be nudging in me.
Him speak. Father God, here we sit. We ask that you might speak. Father, for that person who is believing a lie, I ask that you might set free. That you might replace that lie with the truth. That your perfect love drives out supernatural ability to accomplish in our lives what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. God, we ask this again, an extra measure of your grace to walk the path ahead so that you might set the captives free, that you might meet with me now, and that the overpowering love of Jesus Christ might flood souls and bodies and lives and minds. things in Jesus' name. Amen. Fergal said to me, well, not in the same words, but I might have an ulterior motive. I wonder what a community would look like that partnered with us at Turning Point. First, I'd invite you to stand with us and sing.